You are listening to the Holmes Avenue Baptist Church Podcast. To learn more about Holmes Avenue or how you can join the mission, visit us online at holmesavenue.com. As we are continuing in our study of the book of 1 Timothy, we're going to take a minor detour and run through the book of Acts for a brief moment. You see, just last week, Pastor Brian spoke on what the qualifications of a deacon are. And as he explored that from 1 Timothy, we found it helpful just as we did for thinking of who is an elder, what are their qualifications, to talk about what is it that a deacon does. And so I creatively titled this message today, What Does a Deacon Do? We're going to be in Acts chapter 6, and we're going to be in verses 1 through 7 there. But as you are flipping over to the book of Acts, and if you don't have a Bible, you'll have the text on the screen. I just want to begin with thinking about my son, Perry. Perry is a wonderful young man. He's going to be 11 this year. And I remember when we were preparing for his birth, I really had no idea what I was doing. Full disclosure, I still don't have any idea what I'm doing, just so we're all on the same page. I don't pretend to have some advanced knowledge here. But I remember through the pregnancy wondering, what on earth do we do with him? And I can remember asking Kelly that very question, like, what is it that we do with them? And she's like, you know, spend time with them. I was like, well, when I spend time with people, we drink coffee and eat food, and none of those are good for a newborn. Um, It's going to be a long time for that's actually appropriate. So like, what is it that I'm supposed to do? She's like, well, you hang out with them and you play. I was like, again, when I hang out with people and I play, we throw a Frisbee and we do some other things. Like, I don't know what this looks like for a newborn. And she just told me, you'll figure it out. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, she doesn't have a clue either. So I don't know what we're doing. We're in trouble. (laughs) And then we go through the labor process. We have this beautiful baby boy. And we're in the hospital. And everything's just moving rapidly. And then they give us the green light to go home. And it's like 24 hours or less since we've been in the hospital. And I remember thinking, there's no instruction manual. You're not going to give us like a PDF that we should look at? Like, you know, maybe a book we should read here? You're not going to help us like go home with us and make sure we figure this out? Well, Perry's turning 11 this year. So, so far we've done fine. I think he'll come out of this journey with a minimal amount of broken bones and a small amount of therapy necessary. So I think we're doing okay. But even as we go through this journey of parenting, we continually are asking, what is it I'm supposed to do with him? What is it I'm supposed to do at this age? Because spending life with him now looks very different than when he was a newborn. Spending time with him is very different now. Now, I know that you too have felt this question and concern about what is it you're supposed to do, whether it's with a child or something new in your life, like a job or a new task that you've been assigned. You've had that moment of perhaps abject terror or just complete confusion of what on earth am I supposed to do here? We, as people, we tend to get into situations where we just don't know what our actions are supposed to be. We don't know what the next step is. And frankly, as we try to apply this fairly across the board, roles in church leadership can be like that sometimes. We can look at these positions of elders and deacons, and we can ask questions of, what does it really mean? What are the differences? What is it they're supposed to do? And there can be a little bit of confusion about that. Frankly, we have an idea of what we think it's supposed to look like, but we want to explore, what does that look like in a very practical way? 
I believe there's no better way to explore what these practical things look like than to go directly to the text of Scripture, to look at the very source documents, if you will, with the early church, and to explore what is it that the early church felt that deacons were supposed to do. If you're taking notes, I want you to put this bottom line down. Deacons are God's gift of service to the church. Deacons are God's gift of service to the church. You see, God looked at his church and he said, I've got pastors, elders to shepherd, to guide, to lead, to preach, to encourage. But there are still some things that there's needs, there's challenges that they're facing. And it is not right that they have to deal with all of this alone. So we give them a helpmate. We give them deacons to serve and to be a demonstration of God's love and grace to the church. You see, God knew that we were going to need help as pastors, elders, and he sent deacons. Isn't that an incredible thing? He knew the challenges we would face and the men and women that would need to walk alongside of us. And so he provided a gift in the form of deacons. And so today we're going to explore what does that mean to actually be a deacon? What is it they're supposed to do? We're going to look at Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. You'll have the text on the screen, but if you're taking notes, I want you to jot down our first point. That is, deacons protect the unity of the church. Deacons protect the unity of the church. If you have your Bible open, I want you to look at Acts chapter 6. The text will be on the screen, but let's read this. Acts chapter 6, verse 1 reads, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve, the twelve apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples, the entire body of believers, and they said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. We're going to hit pause right there. And again, our first point is that deacons protect the unity of the church. If you're familiar with the book of Acts, you'll know this is the story after Jesus' resurrection. The church has begun to explode. There are thousands of people that are in the church. They are growing rapidly. And they're trying to meet the various needs of people within their midst. They have people that they feel responsible to take care of. And in the midst of this, we have a burgeoning conflict. Things are going really well until, well, as it always happens, until they don't go well. You see, at this point, we've encountered a, a problem that's occurring within the life of the church. The church at this time, we've got many people who are selling their possessions to meet the needs of people in their midst. And there are supplies that are being made available to those who are in need and a part of this is a daily distribution of food to the needy. And it seems that at this time, the church is experiencing a challenge because there are some widows of a different ethnic background who are being neglected. We've got to keep some context in mind and understand why this is a threat to the unity of the church here. At this time, the vast majority of believers are Jewish Christians. These are people who were born and raised in Jerusalem or within Israel. These are people who, if you look at them and you talk to them, they would identify as 100% Jewish background and culture. And that is the majority of the church. Virtually everyone who's a part of the church, they have been converted from Judaism. Yet, the entire body of the church is not made up of people who are just from Israel. This is where things start to get a little challenging 
Because people have come from all over the world for Pentecost, the church's worship gathering, one of the biggest celebrations in the Israelite culture. These are people from the Jewish diaspora who live across the known world as far as Asia into perhaps modern-day Germany and France. They have come together here in Israel to celebrate. And they've stayed. More people are coming day by day because they hear of what God is doing. And they say, I want to be a part of that. So people are coming looking for healings. They're looking to be cared for. They're coming to worship the God who lives. And in this, we have some challenges that begin to occur. You see, the text indicates that some of these people, this term, the Hellenist that is used, these are people who are Greek Jews. You see, these are people who have come from that Jewish diaspora. They, their ancestors scattered from Israel during persecution years ago. They have been born and raised in a Greek culture. They speak Greek primarily. They are Greek, born and raised. They know nothing but Greek culture and Jesus. And so as they come in, there's a challenge here because they have a vastly different language, vastly different culture. And now they've been knit together into this crazy family called Christ followers, Christians. We have a conflict that's occurring because it seems like they are being neglected in this daily distribution of food. Now, what is this neglect? We're not really sure how it started. We're not sure if it's an intentional thing. We don't think it is. We don't really have historical evidence beyond. We know there's a challenge that some of these widows are not getting what they're supposed to get. You see, this church has grown rapidly, and most people have a Jewish or Aramaic background. The apostles are examples of this. These are the guys that they are Jews of Jews. And it's fair to say that many of the leaders, many of the people in charge of this distribution have that same background. And what we have here is perhaps just the natural difference in people from different cultures, different languages, some challenges that are coming of this. And you might say, well, is that really a big deal? Well, in this moment, it was a very, very big deal. You see, this was a fault line, a fracture point in the early church where they could have split into a hundred different directions. You see, both the Old and New Testament, both the teachings of Jesus that they have at this time and the Old Testament are very clear that widows and orphans are a primary concern for Israel and for the church. You are to care for these people. And in this moment, when you have what seems like some people intentionally neglecting widows... Well, if this is important to all of us, now this is a time where we might have to come to blows to settle this. We might have to fight to protect the rights of our widows because they shouldn't be neglected. It's unfair. You can perhaps feel that tension in there because insert yourself into that scenario. If someone was neglecting your mother, wouldn't you step up? If someone was neglecting a woman you considered like a mother, wouldn't you want to step up? Wouldn't you want to ensure that these sweet old ladies were provided for? You can see the tension being expanded there. Now the apostles and their wisdom, they recognize that there is a need, there is a coming problem, and we've got to come together to fix this problem. They see that this is a moment where the unity of the church, the gathering together around one purpose to worship Jesus and make his name known, it is being threatened. Because people are now wanting to elevate things above where they need to be elevated. 
And they're simply saying, let's come together, let's figure this out, because the most important thing here is for the unity of the church to be protected. Now again, I want to stress that Luke is telling us, the writer of Acts, that it seems like there's one group, maybe a small group of the church that has been neglected, the Hellenist. But the church, the apostles, they believe, they behave as if this one person, this one group of people, hey, their problem, it's not just their problem, it's our problem. This is the church family. This is the family of God he has knit together. And if one group has a problem, we all have a problem that we need to meet. You see, the New Testament church has this emphasis on bearing one another's burdens, ensuring that you do not go through life, hardship, and turmoil alone. Now, the apostles, at this time, they are serving as the spiritual leaders of the congregation. They are serving in a pastor-elder role. And they are overseeing this community fund and this ministry here. And they have a responsibility to resolve this issue for the church. They make this decision to focus in on the priority of prayer and preaching for themselves. We've got to think about this language that's used here and just hit the brakes for a moment. You see, they are not saying that caring for the widows is an unimportant thing. They're actually saying it's incredibly important. But it is not more important than the work of preaching the word and praying for God's harvest. You see, they understand that it's a priority. It is just not the priority for these men. You have to remember, they are the key witnesses to the resurrection. They're the guys who walked with Jesus. They're the guys who saw everything he did. They are the ones who are telling the world of the glory of Jesus' name. To pull them away from this task would be devastating to the work of the church. This statement they use here, it is not right. It's referring to this idea that the most important thing that the church exists for is to make the name of Jesus known. And if that's the priority, then the pastors and elders must prioritize this. The language that's used there in the Greek is that moving away from this would be not pleasing to God. They've made this decision and we assume that the early church supports this decision, and we want to explore their next step. You see, they recognize that this is a critical issue to protect the unity of the body, and they have a solution that is unique and beneficial to the local church. We're going to explore their solution in our next section of Scripture, but if you're taking notes, I want you to jot this down. Deacons meet tangible needs in the church. Deacons meet tangible needs in the church. Look with me at verses 3 and 4. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Deacons meet tangible needs in the church. As we've read, the apostles, they determined there is a better way for the church to be served. They asked this gathered body to select seven men to care for the tables and to serve all the widows of the church. They say, we're going to prioritize this. We're going to appoint people whose specific task is to meet this need. 
We're not going to dig too deeply into the qualifications they give here because Pastor Brian handled that so well last week, and I encourage you to go back and listen to that if you want to dive into the qualifications for a deacon. But we do have to kind of note the following as we look at this. They make note that these men, these people should be of good repute. You see, the apostles are telling us that character matters. Character matters in leadership. It matters everywhere, but particularly in leadership. They know that if they appoint men who are not morally qualified for this, they're going to have more than just widows neglected. They'll have someone running off with the entire bank. And so they say that character matters. We must appoint men who have godly character here. It matters more than people knowing you have good character. This is not something you can walk around and proclaim, I have good character, look at me. No, this is something they judge from your actions in your demeanor over time. It says that these people should be full of the Spirit. They were to be known to allow the Spirit to work in them. Essentially, they should obey the Word of God when they hear it. They should listen to the Scriptures and act upon the Word of God. They should be full of wisdom. They need practical wisdom to administer the distribution of resources. Right? You can't serve everybody, but you've got to serve the most important, the most needy perhaps. You have to think very clearly about that. But they also need godly wisdom to provide proper care and support to the congregation and to the apostles, the pastors and elders. While we're listing these qualifications of those that are desiring to be deacons, it's also important to know that this isn't just for those that are serving as a deacon. This is a baseline expectation for anyone who's a Christ follower. If you're a part of a church, I would simply ask you this question. Can these things be said about you and your life? Because what they are looking for here, they're not looking just for things that are special and noteworthy. They're looking for people that exemplify these things. But they're saying everybody should have these traits and characteristics. If you are a Christ follower, you should be someone who is full of wisdom. You should be someone who is full of the Spirit. You should be someone who is of good reputation. If you're not displaying these things, then I would submit to you that the issue is ultimately rooted in not hearing and obeying God's Word. If you are not studying the Bible rightly handling the Word of God in your personal study, you are not going to display these qualifications. These things come from being transformed by the grace of God and then looking at His Scriptures and living them out. Even if you're not serving as a deacon, you are expected to exemplify these things. Now, they're called here for a very specific task. Caring for the distribution to the widows. You see, deacons are limited to expressing their leadership through service. We need to note what the Bible does and does not say about deacons, right? We need to take a step back here and understand this, that the scriptures only speak about deacons in a few limited places. We actually have that word diakonos that's mentioned here in Acts 6. It's mentioned in Philippians 1 where Paul says he's writing the letter to the church of Philippi to the elders and deacons there. And of course it's mentioned in 1 Timothy where he's talking about the qualifications of deacons. This is really the extent of where we see the office of deacon expressed. 
And so we want to, one, where the scriptures are speaking about the office of deacon. We want to pay close attention to what it's saying. But we also don't want to insert what we think and understand about deacons into the text as well. I recognize that traditionally in many Baptist churches, deacons function as elders. That is not a biblical position. There are pastor's elders and then there are deacons. Deacons serve underneath the leadership of the pastor's elders. They are not the leaders of the congregation according to the scriptures. That may seem controversial based upon your church background and your experience, but again, we want to read what is here in the scriptures, not insert our modern understandings into it. I also need to note that as we've been looking at this, we are looking at it through the lens of speaking about this within the office of deacon as being a male role based on the way the passage is describing it. We also want to note that the early church had many female deacons. Phoebe was perhaps a female deacon found over in Romans 15. We actually can see that in the early church, there were even female deacons serving in various leadership positions, helping baptize people, helping catechize the women, helping walk with them to grow in their faith. Just simply to state that we are not here to debate policy positions or where our church wants to be at this present moment, but we want to address the reality that many churches who love Jesus have some different positions on this. And simply, we say that as a byline to understand. We want to read what is in the text using the confines of the early church, historical precedent, to understand how those that were closest to Jesus lived and thought. Now, the truth here is that what we see from the early church, what we see from this passage, is that deacons are specialists. They exist to meet needs around specific issues or needs for the local church. So if there's a particular problem, someone needs to take care of the building, there's a deacon who steps in. If there is a particular challenge with offering pastoral care, a deacon steps in. If there's a challenge with a distribution to the widows, the deacons are supposed to step in. We can target around a lot of different things here and a lot of churches in the Southern Baptist Convention, will use deacons in a variety of roles. But the best way to summarize it is these men have been called out to ensure that the needs of the church are being met. They are meeting these needs, these tangible needs within the local church to protect the unity of the body and to support the work of the elders. That is their role. They are helpmates to the pastor's elders to ensure that everyone is cared for within the midst of the local church. Throughout church history, we've seen this expressed in a variety of ways through deacons demonstrating God's love and grace to his church. We've seen deacons step up when things were challenging and someone needed to encourage and guide. We've seen deacons step up to become pastors, elders, because they met those qualifications. We've seen deacons be a crucial role in church history. But we must remember that you can only fulfill a crucial role when you are in the right role. As a professor of mine once said, there's room for everybody on the bus. We just got to find the right seat for you on the bus. And that is how we should think about church leadership. We have the two offices of pastor elder and of deacon, and we make sure that you are in the right seat on the bus to serve in those right roles. Now we recognize deacons are protecting the unity of the body, the church. They are meeting tangible needs of the church. 
Our final point is that deacons support the ministry of the elders. Deacons support the ministry of the elders. Look with me at verses 5 through 7. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Right here, the apostles note that, yet again, they're going to devote themselves to the ministry of the Word through prayer, and they're making it clear they've got a task that is of greater priority that only they can do. No one else is qualified. Again, caring for the widows, the least of these, it is a priority. But the priority, the work of the church, is not just meeting tangible needs, but it is to proclaim the gospel message to those that are far from God. We can meet needs from now until when Jesus comes back. But if we are not proclaiming the gospel message of redemption and hope, we are not fulfilling the mission of Jesus Christ. The mission of the church is to tell people about Jesus. This is one of the things that our deacons do here. They meet tangible needs and they support the ministry of the pastor's elders. They're a part of this frontline care that you receive they provide support to the pastors. This is why you have a family deacon. This is someone who walks with you, who's encouraging you, who's there when things are challenging because they are an additional resource to encourage you and shepherd you. This is not to say that Brian and I will have nothing to do with pastoral care because that's not the case. We are going to walk with you and shepherd you and care for you. But we simply recognize that like the apostles, we do have things that are other priorities and we want to ensure that you are a priority as well. We want to ensure that you are cared for. That's why you have multiple men who are here to walk with you, encourage you, guide you, and make sure that you are taken care of. It is not an abdication of our duty, because we do do it, but it's a recognition that you are so important, we want to make sure that there's never a chance we would miss out on what God is doing in your life. The job, the role of deacons, is simply to make things easier on the pastors. Their role is to support the ministry of the pastors. If they are not supporting the ministry of the pastors, they should not be deacons. Their job is to make things easier, not harder. Now, having heard the apostles, the church decides to select seven men. And I find it interesting that the men they select, they're not from the majority of the Jewish culture. They're all Hellenist. We know that because they all have Greek names. These are not normal Jewish names. These are Greek names. They are choosing people from the group that has been neglected to ensure that there will never be a problem with this again. One, they recognize that they're not going to neglect the Hellenist, that sweet old lady that lives next door to them. But two, they recognize that they want to be above board in everything they do. And they're going to say, hey, these men, they're going to take care of everybody. We, they've just come in complaining that Hellenists aren't being taken care of. Of course, they're going to prioritize taking care of everyone, ensuring this is never a problem again. 
We don't really know a whole lot about these men from history. We know that Stephen, he is a primary character in the next chapter. He's what we would describe as the first Christian martyr, the first person to die for his faith. We see Philip again in Acts chapter 8 after Stephen's death. He begins to go share the good news of the gospel of Jesus to some people as he's escaping from persecution. We don't know a whole lot about the other men. There's just not a lot known there. Regardless of that, the section ends with a celebration service for these men in their new role. It's not an ordination service. Deacons are not ordained for gospel ministry like pastors and elders would be. But it's very similar. It's a vesting on them of personal responsibility. It is a church gathering together and saying, together with the pastor's elders, we believe these people are qualified to administer these needs. This laying on of hands is used in the Old Testament as a public display of transfer of responsibility from one leader to the next. That is what's happening here. They're standing before the congregation and everyone knows these men are here to care for us. Luke has one last verse for us to look at in verse 7. And I think we see the result of this faithfulness and obedience to God. You see, the result here is that the Word of God, the message of God, is prioritized. The result here is that the Word of God continues to increase. And what happens? The number of disciples multiplies greatly in Jerusalem. It's being so effective that even these priests, these people who are speaking against Jesus, the ones who led the charge to crucify Him, are now coming to trust in Him. This gospel is increasing in power and effectiveness when things are in the right order that even the very people who crucified Jesus are now coming to repent and believe in their crucified, resurrected Savior. See, the key here, the thing that Luke wants us to see is that the gospel message is kept as the priority for the church. Make no mistake, if we take our eyes off the target of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, we not only will die, but we deserve to die. The only reason we exist as a church is to make Jesus known in our world. Clinging to the gospel is not only the top priority for the church, but it protects the unity of the church and leads us to greater heights in ministry. Now, we've talked about clinging to this gospel, protecting the unity of the body. What is this gospel message? What is this gospel that Jesus' followers believed in? What is this gospel so powerful that it would take those men who crucified Jesus weeks ago and make them followers of him? This message is this, that you and I were born to have a relationship with God. We were intended to walk in footstep with Him, but sin entered the world. We are guilty of sin by our own actions. We are guilty of sin by the things that we have done. There is not a one of us that is innocent. And that sin, as it entered the world, it separated us from God. It created a great divide between us and God, and there is nothing we could do to bridge that divide. There are no good works. There are no good deeds. There is nothing we can do that would give us access to that relationship with God. 
And God, not being content with that, mounted the greatest rescue mission that has ever been attempted. He sent His very Son, Jesus, to live the life that we could not. Jesus came to this earth as an innocent child. He grew in stature and wisdom. And He ended His life having lived the perfect life that we were to live. He died the death that we deserved, an innocent man, but paid for the debt of our sin and shame upon the cross so that Jesus could bring us into the family of God. Jesus endured his pain and suffering on the cross so that he could look upon us and call us brother and sister. And the good news is that this gospel message still saves. The good news is that Jesus' blood still has power to redeem his people. The good news is that Jesus is still in the business of saving And this is the hope that we have before us. That Jesus is who he says he is. He has done the very things he promised he would do. And he has made a way for his people to come back home. To bridge that divide between man and God. If, if we would trust in him and repent of our sins. This is the good news of the gospel. That there was no way. Yet Jesus, yet God made a way for his people. This is the message we cling to. This is the message we proclaim. This is why we exist as a church. So that those that are far from God might see, hear, and respond to the name of Jesus. As I look around the room, I don't pretend to know everyone's story and your faith journey, but what I do know is this. Is that no matter where you've been, No matter what you have done, there is no sin too great. There is no shame too dark that cannot be forgiven by the blood of Jesus. There is nowhere you can go. There is nothing you can do that will separate you from the love of God. And this truth, the one that we cling to, is that Jesus will forgive us and hold us tightly into eternity. And so today, you have an opportunity to look upon the resurrected Savior, to cry out to Him for forgiveness and mercy, to trust in Him and receive repentance of your sins and be forgiven, that you will dwell with Him in this life, having confidence and assurance that no matter what occurs, you will see Him in the next life. All it takes are a few simple words and a prayer. There's no prayer, rote prayer you have to pray. You simply cry out to God that you want His mercy and forgiveness. And He will give it to you. If you're here and you're not sure what your next step needs to be, if you don't know where to go, come speak to me during the next few minutes. I will love to tell you about the grace of God and to celebrate what He's doing in your life. If you don't feel comfortable with that, you can message us online. You can send us an email. You can send Messenger Pigeon. I frankly don't care. If the Lord is doing something in your life, we want to hear it and know it and celebrate with you. So if I may, I want to take a moment to give you time to speak to God. A few silent moments, and then I'll close us in prayer. And together, we will worship our resurrected Savior with our hearts, minds, and voices. So if you would, 
you go to Lord in prayer with me? Father, we come to you now looking for grace and mercy. We desire for hope, for rescue, for restoration. Lord, I don't know where everyone is at in their spiritual journey in this room, but I know that as people, they want to be loved. They want to be accepted. They want to be cared for. And so, Father, we know that you offer love, you offer acceptance, you offer care greater than anyone else in this world could offer. And so, Lord, we come to you asking for those things to be poured out upon us. Show us your love. Show us the acceptance you have to give us. Lord, give us all that we need through your Son, Jesus. Lord, lead our hearts to be softened and to repent of our sins, to cry out to you for grace and mercy, trusting in you, resting that you are the only way to the Father. Jesus, you are the only way to the Father. Lord, let us cry out to you. Let us make much of your name, rejoicing in the free gift of grace you've given your people. And let us celebrate all that you've done, proclaiming your great name so that the world might see, hear, and respond to the name of Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords. Lord, today, let the Spirit move on our hearts. Let us desire to worship you and let us sing clearly of the grace we have received, rejoicing in all that you've done for us. Lord, we pray these things in your name.